something that I've done for, I think, the past two years is really double down on my understanding of tech ethics Mm -hmm. and AI ethics. Um, And a big part of that is policy. So understanding, you know, how and when and where should policymakers be creating guardrails. Um, Hi, I'm Chris Parisi, host of the AI Wave, the only podcast that combines AI and business with a big focus on Rhode Island. Today's episode's a really cool one. We're talking to someone that worked at Meta, uh, Uber, with the autonomous vehicles, uh, Sonos, thinking about data and speakers. I mean, she had a really, really great insights. Her name is Allie Silver, and she's joining us to talk about what AI has been doing in the last five, 10 years, and how we can consider the ethics of AI throughout it all. So join us and stay tuned. All right, so let's begin with Ali Silver. Thank you so much for coming and joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Oh, well, first off, just set it straight. Is there any statement or anything like that you need to make? Yes. So all of the views that I express are my own and don't represent any of the companies I previously worked for or currently work for. And you worked for some pretty cool previous companies and a pretty cool company currently. Kind of tell our audience, like, what have you, where have you been? What have you been doing? Give us, paint us that picture for us. Sure. So I currently work for Sonos. Uh, we make speakers. Um, and I work with an AI there uh, utilizing uh, data that we're getting from our speakers to optimize the sound in the space. It's That's called cool. True Play. Oh. Um, and then previously, I worked for Meta, doing virtual re- reality research for the metaverse, working on codec avatars. So if you've seen um, Mark Zuckerberg's recent interview with a podcaster, um, they were both in VR. That, that was the work I was doing. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then before that, I was working for Uber ATG, which um, worked on autonomous vehicles and then was moved over to Aurora. As part of that as well. And then before that, retail at American Eagle Outfitters and started my career at Geico, uh, working on their mobile app. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> that's really cool. I mean, when it comes to AI, you think of uh, machine learning and data analysis. You think of maybe the metaverse. You think of autonomous vehicles. You did it all already in a short span of time. <laughs> so you've been familiar with AI, it seems, for quite some time and get to see how the big, big companies are leveraging AI to grow their business um, and operate their business. Mm-hmm. What are like some lessons you've learned or some insights that you've found any of those companies when it comes to AI? I think the biggest lesson I've learned so far is that data matters. So the mm. quality and the quantity of the data that you're getting, the better the product that you're going to have at the end of the day. So um, take Uh, Meta, for example. Mm -hmm. So um, to create those amazing codec avatars, they needed to collect tons of data on different people. So um, to be able to create uh, a repeatable process for different types of people. So not just Mark Zuckerberg looks like Mark Zuckerberg. We want, you know, you to look like you in the Mm. metaverse. So um, it's really the quality and quantity of data. I saw that interview. I mean, if no one has checked it out yet, definitely check it out. It's pretty impressive of how you really feel like, like we are physically in the room together, 
but you can be in California and it still feels like we're in the room together. Right. And there might have been a billions and billions of data points to get it to yeah. that. And AI was probably a, a big help with that. So how did you get into this? Like, what was your path yeah. to get into this technology? So I knew from a young age, I had some aptitude for technology. Um, I was always interested. Never took a coding class in, in high school, though. But starting in college, I um, decided information science mm -hmm. was what it was called. It's kind of computer science um, at the University of Pittsburgh was mm. what I decided to study. And um, within that, you know, early classes, you just start doing some coding, really basic HTML type of stuff. Um, and then you get a little bit more advanced. And I was trying to figure out, OK, what's my niche within this? It's, you know, vast within computer science. So um, I decided early on that human-centered design or human factors mm. was really important to me. Like, how is this resonating with the end user? How do we make it the best experience possible? Um, so from there, I got my first job at Geico where I was working on the app. Um, I started as a systems analyst there um, and uh, pretty quickly transitioned into more of a product manager role. Uh, I was really interested in like leading teams. Yeah. Um, so I- Again, the human aspect yeah, of it all. Right, exactly. And designing, like helping to design from the inception through delivery, what is that experience like? Um, so I had the opportunity to work on a chatbot um, as my first like big delivery project. Um, mm. And we were utilizing IBM Watson, which is a pretty early uh, AI tool that we had at the time in like 2015. Wow, that's yeah. pretty amazing. Yeah. And you said you went to University of Pittsburgh. I did. I mean, that's like the robotics capital of America right now. I just saw a fun little chart that talked about uh, VC funding received, and the list was number one, Pittsburgh, yeah. number two, China, number three, rest of America. <laughs> yeah. Literally, that's how much investment is going into robotics. Why is that? What makes Pittsburgh special? Is it their universities? I mean, there are great universities, like, you know, Rhode Island also has great universities. Um, I That and then I think the investments that have come from these bigger companies like Meta saw this lab in Pittsburgh that was working on this problem of creating, you know, lifelike avatars and they invested. So we're just seeing those heavily invested um, projects coming out of CMU and Pitt and other universities in, uh, in Pittsburgh. And then the autonomous vehicle boom really started in Pittsburgh. Um, so they're I think at the height, there were six different companies that were working on the autonomous vehicle problem. Um, it's but what makes bit. Pittsburgh like the hub of it all? Like what brought those businesses, those entrepreneurs to say, I want to start my autonomous vehicle uh, startup in Pittsburgh? That's a great question. I mean, if you've ever been to Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh's a very livable city. Yeah. Um, Prices are pretty low. The people are friendly. It has that blue collar feel. It went from a big industrial, you know, city to a pretty small city, like in population wise. So there was just a lot of room for growth and a lot of space for um, people to kind of move in and, and take, you know, take space within robotics. Um, so I, I think it was between just the ability, like the financial ability to be able to set up shop, right? It's a big investment to start a company. Um, and then the heavy investments that we saw from the big tech, tech companies in um, Pittsburgh, which was amazing. Because you could probably know where my brain is going here is that I'm all about Rhode Island beating, being the leading state in the AI-driven economy, mm -hmm. where we can once again lead the AI revolution. And I'm going to talk about a task 
Salesforce a little bit later on because I know you were part of one too. But I always see Pittsburgh and Providence as sister cities, like very similar in size. They were both once leaders in the industrial era. Um, and now Pittsburgh is like leading the way in robotics and, and AI-related industries. So it gives me hope and also could be a blueprint of how Pro Providence can be that leading city as well for at least AI. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, CMU is a leading engineering university. Yeah. So we have some, you know, brilliant minds over there. And I think that that opportunity came from just their ability to harness their students, keep them in Pittsburgh. Um, for example, like Duolingo is also a Pittsburgh-based company mm. and, and created from a CMU alum. Oh, man, this yeah. is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Uh, so you, get, you have a unique perspective because you lived in Pittsburgh for like, what, 10 years? Yeah. And you lived here for the past few years? Nope, it's been about seven months. <laughs> okay, so about seven months when yeah. you at least get to get a feel for Providence. Yeah. Um, and you could probably see that there are a lot of similarities. Yeah, definitely. Actually, that's what drew me to Providence is that it was a similar city, um, more coastal, which I was looking for, <laughs> yeah. um, closer to family as well in the Boston area. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right, so we talked about your path into technology, which leads you into your current role but humans have always been at the forefront, making sure that uh, even how the app is built is user-centric, user-centric. And um, But you also talked once about data that goes in, how important it is, for instance, with Meta's Kodak. Um, but also with this emergent technology, there are concerns about AI and what type of data is going in. How do you feel you can ensure that there's diversity, inclusion when it comes to utilizing and building AI models. Yeah, so I think the the number one place to start is the pipeline. So this is a problem I've been looking at for several years now. When I was at American Eagle Outfitters, I led our women in tech um, group. And uh, we were really looking at how do we actually solve this? And how do we leverage our users who are, you know, young women, girls who are interested in the product to really get inspired to to join the tech field? Mm. Um, because really, it wasn't necessarily just hiring for diversity, but it's making sure that, you know, People aren't losing their interest from early age going into school because we see a lot of drop off, especially for young women from um, middle school into high school mm. um, entering the tech field. So getting to diversity is a really tough problem. And it's not necessarily something we've seen a huge like increase in over since I've started my career. Um, it's something I've been tirelessly working on since then. Um, but that I mean, so that is kind of like problem number one. Um, and then problem number two is making sure that our, you know, AI or, or the products that are being built are built by a diverse group. So making sure that teams internally were promoting women, we're promoting people of color, we're making sure that there are opportunities for people to grow in their career and be moved into these types of roles. So we don't have just a unilateral looking team mm -hmm. that we have that diversity. So we can start thinking about where are the gaps? Who are we leaving out? What are the impacts that this technology could have? Um, and yeah, make sure that we're, we're steering it in the right direction. And I honestly think that workers have more kind of leverage than probably most think that we do within industry. Um, we have the ability to kind of stop if we need to and assess. Um, I, you don't see it happen often, mm. but um, 
yeah, we're, we're able to really use our voices internally and make sure that we're advocating for the right thing. And you mentioned what some what are some of the things that you would want to advocate for? Is there anything you're currently doing in relation to what you just said that you can speak about? Um, so, I mean, continuously, I'm advocating for more women to enter the sp tech space. I think currently industry wide, we're hovering around 20, between 20 and 25 percent. So it's mm -hmm. quite low. Um, so that's something I'm continuously doing is making sure that I'm creating a good space and my team is also creating a, a space for women to enter um, when we're able to. Um, uh, otherwise, uh, you know, we're looking at, so I mentioned at the top that I'm working on a product uh, called True Play within Sonos. And True Play is a um, you have to, in some cases, physically move your body to make sure that you're getting the right sound quality um, within the space. That's just how our algorithm works, how the product works, is, is that we have to kind of assess different parts of the room um, using your phone microphone. Um, that could be an accessibility issue for people. So just thinking about outside of yourself and um, trying to understand like other people's perspectives of how... Um, how the technology may or may not work for them. I mean, that's a great point. You can't have all the same type of people building a product because it's going to be a product that should be accessible to all. Um, so, so that's exciting. And you make me also think about what a great opportunity it is here in Rhode Island. We have a lot of brilliant women here. Well, we should ensure that our K through 12 and our higher ed is advocating and promoting these young girls and young women to enter into this yeah. tech space, right? Whether it's STEM or just tech in general. Because um, that could be our advantage too here in Rhode mm -hmm. Island. You know, mm -hmm. just imagine 50% of our workforce is, is women. Now that gives us another competitive advantage because we have a different view, different mindset, yep. and we have more talent available to, to build and innovate. Yeah. Um, so that's really exciting. I know I keep talking a lot about Rhode Island and the vision to make it a leader in the AI revolution. So I'll be advocating or I have been advocating for an AI task force. And the vision for the AI task force is to put all these brilliant minds together to be proactive and ensure that, yes, we are mitigating these risks with AI, but also being opportunistic. Mm -hmm. You know, I believe that Rhode Island can be that leader in the AI revolution. So this task force will help us take advantage, but also let's let's be concerned as well. Let's have these conversations about diversity mm -hmm. and inclusion. Let's make sure that we are in uh, keeping our older workforce, you know, up to date to make sure they're not just kicked out the door. Let's make sure that we are doing everything we can to reduce the amount of jobs being displaced and lost. Yeah. Um, but you also created a task force or were part of a task force. What was that like? Um, any advice as we go ahead and, and build this task force? Yeah. So at Meta, um, I and several other women within the office all kind of saw the opportunity at the same time to make sure that we were getting people in the same room to discuss opportunities to improve our data quality. So I mentioned that before that really AI's power comes from the quality and quantity of data. Um, we were seeing that maybe the data quality that we had at the time wasn't going to be scalable. It wasn't going to be something that, you know, we would be able to use into the future. Um, so we wanted to make kind of 
make sure at that point in our innovation that we were able to to get on a better playing field mm -hmm. to enable a, you know a better future for the virtual reality for the users of the virtual reality of the metaverse. Um, so um, I met up with uh, this group. We extended the invite lab wide. Anybody who wanted to join could join. We met. I'm pretty sure biweekly. Um, we initially brainstormed. Okay, what are the opportunities? Where do we see these gaps? Because people came from different roles. So everyone had a unique experience. We were we were assessing what was our quality of data? How could we improve our quality of data? Um, and in addition to that, what could we do to make our systems work better for all kinds of people, right? Um, make sure there was accessibility, make sure the lighting worked for the right people. Um, so in that case, we... Um, assessed all of these opportunities. We ranked them kind of collaboratively as a group. And then we tracked them. We understood, okay, who needs to take action? And then once action was taken, we made sure that everyone was updated. Um, we wanted to really stay kind of uniform and, and have this as a, a big force together. Um, it was a very like bottoms up opportunity. Um, leadership, some leaders were part of the group, but they actually took a back seat where they weren't mm. leading the meeting. They they provided the opportunity for, you know, um, younger people in the office, more entry level people to really take a leading role, which was really beautiful because there aren't that many spaces in an office that right. that can happen. Um, but they also still took it with, you know, serious consideration. Um, they helped make sure certain work was prioritized over other work. Um, and they made sure the office was also aware, even if people weren't part of the um, the task force, that they were aware of what was happening. So um, some of the things that I learned from that, or we learned collectively from that, was that, um, you know, making sure that it is open to all people who are interested. Because the people that you'll see that are interested in these kinds of opportunities tend to be those who are, maybe are more on the fringes or are minoritized or don't have the ability to be in the room most of the time. Mm. That was That's what was beautiful about this group. Um, and then the other thing is we did find that having such a large group was made it harder for decisions to be made. So we did decide eventually to kind of tighten up like the leadership within the group, um, but we still democratized it where there is extremely transparent. Everyone knew what was going on. People still had a voice. So if they disagreed, they were still able to talk it through. Um, and we made sure that whoever wanted to participate and actually take action, there was opportunities because it was a really great le learning opportunity for a lot of people as well. How many people did you slim it down to? Um, I believe we had like, three or four leaders, including a senior executive um, being In part addition of that. to? A larger, a yeah, larger a larger cohort, maybe of 15 to 20 people. Okay. Yeah. Um, so that's a good thing to learn is also we need the, like the power players, so to speak, to be in the room mm -hmm. because they're the ones that are going to make sure that everything's executed mm -hmm. and allocating the resources right. towards it. But it's great for them to also take a back seat to let others speak up. So exactly. like this task force may be mostly the power players, so to speak, but having these subcommittees of those that are passionate mm -hmm. within their departments or within their industries or companies so that we can ensure that there's a diverse uh, viewpoint and opinions on this so that we can have a really good holistic view on how to make it successful. Yeah, that is ideal for sure. <laughs> very cool. This yeah. was very cool. I mean, someone that worked at Meta, you know, you've, you've, you've worked in AI in a while. Yeah. Where do you see AI heading 
in the next, you know, two to five years? Yeah, that's a hard question. Um, I think it's it's really hard to understand exactly where it's heading or mm. how it's heading there. Mm-hmm. Um, something that I've done for I think the past two years is really double down on my understanding of tech ethics Mm -hmm. and AI ethics. Um, And a big part of that is policy. So understanding, you know, how and when and where should policymakers be creating guardrails? Um, And obviously this is a big topic right now when it comes to all the big tech players. Um, There's, you know, a a lot of hearings (laughs) on Capitol Hill right now about this. Um, So it's it's hard to say, right, If, if the government decides to create guardrails It'll look way different than if they don't. Um, And what I guess where my concern around ethics lays is that it's kind of been a backseat um, discussion. It hasn't Mm -hmm. been at the forefront of the discussion of AI. And I see that as, one, a missed opportunity and, two, a concern. Mm -hmm. Um, So – in the past five to 10 years, we've seen AI exponentially evolve. Um, tech has exponentially evolved generally, but AI is kind of like a microcosm of evolution that has really sped up our abilities, right? Yeah. So in the next two to five years, almost anything could happen. It could be, <laughs> we could be knocked out of the park of what, you know, where we are today with AI. So, yeah. And when you say ethics has been largely not been part of the, let's say, general conversation. Yeah. You know, you you have this arms race, so to speak, to the top with all of these large AI companies to be the best. Mm-hmm. And you have this balance where, let's say, government do, they do want to put up these guardrails but are they going to just hinder the American companies so that their competition in China can not have any guardrails mm-hmm. and succeed? It's a tough balance. Yeah. So when you say ethics hasn't been involved or part of the larger discussion, is there anything specifically that you're thinking about or anything specifically that, let's say, I should be considering as we develop the AI task force? Uh, I, I th- the, My big concern right now is the leverage and usage of um, generative AI such as chat GPT. So um, there there are no guardrails on that. It, people have already started using it for, you know, not great things um, and not providing benefit to society. Other people have. So it, it is a balance. It's a, du- it's a duality. Um, but my concern is that I've heard from peers. I've heard in the news um, people suggesting like children use it. And I I think there's concern with that. Um, I think without educating our children on what it does, how it works, giving, you know, more information to people um, is just going to be a detriment to to society and to, uh, you know, the next generation who's kind of growing up with this stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, As adults, you know, maybe we can make conscious choices of what we're saying or putting in there, but um, maybe younger kids won't have those internal guardrails. Um, And we don't know where this data is necessarily going. It's not regulated necessarily on how that data is going to be used, where it's being stored. Um, It requires a lot of trust in uh, companies like OpenAI to do the right thing. But, you know, there's nothing to guarantee that they will or can or, you know, that their data is safe. Um, All we can do is really trust. So I think that's, to me, the scary part is that it requires a lot of trust. Right. No, that's a great point. You know, and you mentioned internal guardrails. So I think education is really important. Educating not only our our young, brilliant minds that that are aspiring, but also 
adults, young adults, yeah. older adults, you know, what are the capabilities? What are the things that we should be concerned about so that we can use it properly? Right. Um, so I, I learned a lot. I, I really appreciate you coming on this episode to teach us about ethics, about diversity, about autonomous, about robotics, about metaverse. I mean, this was a really exciting conversation. So I really thank you for coming. And, and I know our audience appreciates it as well. Thank you for having me and thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs> All right, great. Thank you. Wow, that was a really great episode. Thank you, Allie, for joining us. I mean, one thing that really resonated me is when she said that people in the industry have more power than they know. So we're all part of this solution. We can't blame anyone or hope that this company does a good thing. You know, we have our power as well to ensure that we're using AI responsibly, educating our young ones and making sure, you know, maybe our state is setting us, uh, setting us up for success. So that was a great interview. Thank you again, Ali Silver, for joining us. And I hope you all enjoyed it as well. So as always, make sure to share this, like this, comment, subscribe. You know what to do. Thank you for joining us again today. We'll see you next time as we ride this AI wave.